This is the Drawing the Ideal Self podcast for January 2021. So although we've got a new year, we haven't really been celebrating very much because we're still locked down in the UK. I expect most places are as well. Uh, and it's really a fairly grim situation, including the fact there's loads of rain. It's not very nice weather at all. When you go out, it's freezing. Not very much fun going on. Anyway, whatever happens, we can still do the podcast. So hopefully you'll find this an interesting chapter uh, to do with some work by Tom Ravenet. I thought today that we could have a look at a paper by Tom Ravenet. Tom was an educational psychologist who worked in London in the borough of Newham and he became principal there. He was actually brought up in care himself um, and I know that he did voluntary work uh, both doing supervision for people doing PCP training but also with a children's home in Wales where he would travel on a Saturday to meet young people or their carers and have discussions about difficulties they were facing. Um, I met him actually after he retired uh, and was my supervisor during my PCP advanced course. And he was a really different kind of supervisor, so very challenging in terms of PCP, um, but also uh, very encouraging of experimentation. So his job was to help me to sort of synthesise the PCP that I was learning on the course and to try and put it into action. And he was really good at pushing me to think about how it fitted together and also to develop new ideas. There's one book really of Tom's collected papers uh, and that's called Personal Construct Theory in Educational Psychology, A Practitioner's View. I'll put the reference uh, in the show notes. It's a really good book. If you're going to read one book about working with children and young people, I would suggest that that's a very useful text. And although he's an educational psychologist in terms of his practice, the same principles apply for any other kind of psychology, working with children and young people, or working in a way that means you're working with the organisation as well as the person. The paper I want to talk to you about was actually written in 1980. So uh, this book has collected papers and what they did was get permission from various places they'd been published before and uh, pull them all together so that all his papers were in one book. The title of the paper is Never, Never, Never Give Advice, an essay in professional practice. And Tom introduces it saying... When a trainee psychologist is disappointed because she saw that you didn't give advice and yet thought that you should, what do you do? I said to her, never, never, never let me hear you give advice. This paper, written lightheartedly but with serious intent, had to be written to justify my words. So what had happened is he was with um, a psychologist, a trainee psychologist who was shadowing him um, and although that person was experienced, they were still in training and they went to a school and had what Tom thought was a really useful and illuminating discussion about a young person. Uh, and when they discussed it later on, he felt that the psychologist was actually very subdued in the response that she gave. 
uh, and they discussed what that was about. And it was because he didn't give advice to the people that he was talking to in a very obvious way. And what Tom said is that made him think about this more and about why he didn't. And what he was trying to do instead of give advice and why it didn't make any sense to give advice. So he pulled it all together in this paper uh, and it begins with a description of the situation. But then he talks about his five aphorisms. Aphorisms isn't really a word in common usage. Um, and I looked up to make sure I was certain of what it meant. Um, and actually, what it says in the dictionary is that it is a concise statement of principle. So Tom's five aphorisms are, giving advice takes place between two people. Unfortunately, it is usually good for only one of them. The giving of advice is good only when it can be rejected. Otherwise, it is a covert way of telling the other person what to do. If you want your advice to make an impact, ask your client what stops him carrying it out. If you want to ensure having your advice ignored, offer it when you have not been asked for it. Giving advice is like throwing a boomerang. If you're not careful, it will come back and hit you where it hurts. I think these are really interesting. So what Tom's saying is that actually the situation of giving advice and receiving advice puts people into what he calls a one up, one down situation. So somebody has more power than the other. That makes a kind of skewed uh, relationship between the two. And what he tried to do was to elicit information and illuminate and he talked a lot about illuminating what is already happening and helping people to find their own solutions without the psychologist themselves giving the advice so the psychologist would be the facilitator of the discussion and ask really good questions this doesn't make it an easy task uh, so asking the questions was a really important thing but actually giving advice would be done by the person to themselves. I think that's quite a challenge to the sort of way that people are trained to behave uh, so that you could, if you're a, an educational psychologist, you might go to a school, you'll negotiate with the school who, which teacher you've got to see. The teacher would then say why they want to see you and implicit in that discussion would be something about maybe, and now your job as psychologist is to make suggestions about what might happen. Uh, what Tom would do would be to have a discussion about a child and try to think really hard about what questions would illuminate the situation so that the person could see what to do for themselves. And sometimes the giving of advice may be good for the person giving rather than for the person receiving. Because if that person can't say, no, I can't really do that or I don't want to do that, you know, what what's happening between those two people is the specialist or psychologist or therapist or whoever it is, is saying to them, okay, do this about this problem. This is what I would suggest. 
and they don't then have the facility to say no that's ridiculous or that's not going to work if you just leave it there um, so what he wanted to do was to have a much deeper conversation about children's difficulties and work out with people what might be going on and what could happen. But what Tom would be doing was finding a way for the people he was talking to to find the solutions themselves. So he presented a reasoned case against giving advice in two arguments. So the first argument was about the fact that each person in the interaction has their own constructions, their personal constructions of what's going on and what the meaning is of what's going on and how whatever is going on might affect what happens next or further away in the future. So the implications of that. But that has to be done through language and it has to be done through construing. So the coming together of the two people is all about whether they can have a shared construing of the discussion uh, and the implications of the discussion that is close enough to each other that it is truly meaningful. So when somebody is talking about a young person's problems, that will be expressed in terms of the person delivering the information. So if it's in writing, it might be in a referral letter. If it's verbal in conversation, it will be in the words that they've chosen to express that difficulty. But that will be their construing. It doesn't mean that the young person actually has those difficulties in that sort of way. It's only going to be an interpretation of what's going on using the construing of the adult who's making the referral. What Tom said was, when there is a verbal exchange of information between two people, what is given and what is received both reflect and are related to the representation of each individual's personal but hidden world. Even when there is apparent agreement between people by virtue of some commonality of language, their disparity is easily discovered by asking of any positive assertion either what it also denies or what else does it further imply. The giving of advice is merely one form of verbal interchange and suffers, therefore, from the failures in accurate communication stemming from the personalisation process described above. That makes a lot of sense to me. So the discussion that you have with somebody about a young person is that you're discussing their construing of that young person. These aren't facts about a young person and often their interpretations might be quite open. They'll say, you know, I think this might be going on. I think they might be having trouble with that. But you've got to check that out. The second argument is related to what he calls a powerful relationship component. He says, in the case of giving advice, there are two special relationship components. The first is the complementary relationship of giver and receiver. The second, the relationship of expert and layman. If the participants in the interchange accept these two set roles, the interchange may be harmonious. People are usually, however, somewhat ambivalent accepting the one-down position, implied by being either the receiver or a person of lesser expertise. Parents and teachers know less than other humans. 
When the recipient of the advice experiences these ambivalent feelings, he is also likely to be ambivalent about both receiving the advice and the actions which the advice suggests. Under such circumstances, even the best advice loses its power. So he goes on to sum up and says, My two arguments point to the difficulties implicit in giving advice. On the one hand, its informative content is likely to be less than fully understood. On the other, despite an apparent willingness on the part of the receiver, it might well be rejected or sabotaged. In either case, it might have been better to give no advice at all. That's a really interesting situation, I think. So he encourages us to not give advice, but to take a position which is different from that. So the question might be for somebody who is becoming a therapist of any kind or a psychologist is what on earth are you going to do instead of giving advice to people, particularly when they've called you in to do so? So Tom makes some suggestions. So his first approach, he would say, was to illuminate the issue for which our services have been asked. In order to illuminate, we need to see both beyond and behind our client's vision. Otherwise, we can only tell him what he already knows. This approach requires of ourselves that we either see more than our client sees or that we recognise patterns where he has seen only isolated bits of information. We cannot do this, of course, without being prepared to ask many questions that our client would not dare to ask or would not think of asking. So the great thing about PCP is there are lots of techniques available for you to explore a person's stance, situation, experience, interpretations, whatever you like to call it. Um, so it's something that you can do to illuminate. Um, and I always think of that as like sort of shining a torch on something and making it clearer. So you might use something, well, let's say like drawing the ideal self um, to find out where a child wants to go in their future and see how that fits with where the adults think the child should be going. Uh, and sometimes that discrepancy shows where the problem lies, that actually they didn't have a shared view of what the future was going to look like. And therefore, they were just complaining about each other or falling out or whatever. You might use something like a peg grid to explore um, a child's view of their teachers. So you could do that with different subject teachers and help them to see the patterns in their construing. I really like the PEG. Uh, I like it for looking at issues to do with families, but I think it can also be really useful for any other kind of group as well. So you could do that with a group of friends or other children. So if there's a young person who's struggling with friendships, you might ask them to think of four or five friends and then do a peg around that friendship stuff. And you would be able to see how those people are seeing each other and how that young person is seeing themselves and help them to notice what the patterns are. Now, that's really different from you being the interpreter and you telling them what they have done and what it might mean. Your job is to facilitate their own enlightenment. The second thing that we might do is 
write a prescription. And Tom says, think very carefully about his aphorisms, particularly the second one. The giving of advice is good only when it can be rejected. Otherwise, it is a covert way of telling the other person what to do. And quite often as professionals, we would set something up with them and come back and see how it's going. And he cautioned against this because it falls into the power relationships of the one-up, one-down position, so the expert and the layperson, so that the expert is a person who is writing the prescription. So that might be, you know, do this work with this child every day for three weeks, I'll come back and see how you're getting on, which immediately puts the person in a less powerful situation than they would have been. And that can be very uncomfortable for people. And what Tom refers to is the impact of that on that person. And really he's talking about potential for invalidation. So if that teacher then feels that their intelligence is insulted or you're telling them to do something they already know or they've tried a hundred times before then what you might find is that they don't speak highly of you, to say the least. Uh, I had an experience like this where I was asked for advice, I thought, early in my career. Um, so a teacher wanted some advice for how to teach a child to read because they weren't making progress. Um, so I went in, did some assessment work and set up a precision teaching programme, which for those of you who are not teachers is a, a programme where children do daily practice and you're focused on improving scores and making the chunks of learning so small that progress is pretty much guaranteed. So I'd set up this programme and I'd given the teacher all the information she needed. I'd sent it actually out in a report as well um, so that she could get going. And in fact, I think I actually got the programme together so what, what had happened at the start is she had asked, I thought, for this. However, it turned out that wasn't what she was asking for. And that wasn't why she had been in touch. So I went back to see how things were. And she had done something completely different. And I was irritated by that. I think it was in my first year of practice as an educational psychologist. I was thinking, why is she asking me for advice and then not following it at all? So I, I wrote my summary. She had found a different way of working with the child and uh, it was working OK. He was making some progress now. Um, and I was a bit peeved because I was a bit stupid. <laughs> so I was thinking, why has she done it? Um, and I wrote in my report that we'd had a discussion. She decided to do something different and the child seemed to be making progress. She went absolutely mad. So she complained to the head. She complained to the union. She was furious with me. The head contacted my manager to say that it caused a whole load of trouble. And it was because I had completely misread what it was that she was wanting. She didn't really want advice and I should have explored that more. What she wanted was validation of the fact that this child was difficult to teach. 
And actually, it turned out, as I worked out from things that happened later, what she wanted was the child to move to the other teacher's class in that year group. And once that happened, the problem went away. I think that child had difficulties that got under her skin. And what I hadn't done is explore any of that. So I'd gone and done what I thought she had asked for without enough exploration of why and how and what was really bothering her and what she thought might help and whether she thought if I suggested this programme it would be doable, whether it would lead to progress, etc, etc. Um, I learnt that lesson very, very early in my career and it was a very hard lesson, extremely uncomfortable. It was OK in the end, but, oh my goodness, it was a terrible effect. And I think it, that was that what that was about. It was about her feeling insulted that... I had come up with something and I had taken that I am the expert position by not doing that exploration because actually she did know how to teach him to read. Um, and I think sometimes a referral isn't what it seems to be on the piece of paper or in the first conversation. And it's really, really, really important to explore what it is somebody's looking for, what they hope to get out of it. And also what the parameters are for that. So if if you suggested that the child should move class, would that be OK? Would that not be OK? What would be the problems with it, etc.? You know, that's perhaps not the best example. So I would caution you to explore referrals really carefully because definitely Tom's last thing was giving advice is like throwing a boomerang you're not careful it will come back and hit you where it hurts and that's what happened to me not only was the advice ignored I had offered it when it hadn't been asked for and when I gave it it certainly came back and hit me smack in the face um, so yeah I think he is extremely wise to pick these things up and I think it's really difficult to not give advice because the whole system seems to be set up to suggest that therapists or psychologists or specialist teachers or social workers their job is to tell people what the best practice might be well it doesn't matter what the best practice might be if what you don't do is explore what the implications of that is going to be for the person that you're talking to um, so I talked last month about uh, trying to take more exercise which I've done I'm pleased with myself and also uh limiting how much alcohol I drink because I don't want to be a lockdown drunk um, which I've also done I knew that information I've known it probably since I was 30 that you shouldn't eat so much food you should take plenty of exercise you shouldn't eat too much chocolate and you shouldn't drink too much did I follow it? No. So if somebody had come along and told me what to do, I wouldn't have done it. But what I did was work out for myself what I needed to do. And that's more effective. And what he talks about is the way a psychologist or a specialist person going in working with children and young people should take the role of facilitating people finding out. And that is a valid role. It isn't about telling people what's what, unless you're certain that's what they've asked you to do. But actually, if you are going to do that, you need to make sure that they realise what the implications might be. The third approach he talks about 
he says, calls for a psychologist and client jointly to explore their individual ways of understanding the problem and from the joint exploration to work out changes in the client's way of acting on a what-would-happen-if basis. This approach allows a relationship of equality rather than a one-up, one-down and allows for each to find value in their total awareness rather than automatically giving preference to the awareness of the psychologist. So, you know, as a psychologist myself, I'd be there trying to get a joint understanding of what seemed to be the problem, a shared understanding, and to explore potential solutions in a very active and curious way, but not in a way that says, and now you must do this. That's up to the person that I'm exploring with to decide what it is they're going to do. And every so often, I still would slip into trying to tell people what to do. Sometimes because I'm too tired, sometimes because I'm thought hard enough, sometimes because I didn't have enough time. That's really a bit of an excuse, I guess, because there's always enough time to ask questions. But what I didn't have enough time for was a proper exploration. And I think that it can be easy to give advice that hasn't been properly requested and then put yourself into a one-up situation with whoever your client is at that point, whether that's a teacher or a parent or whoever. could be another professional. So I think one of the things that uh, Tom was really good at was storytelling. And I don't know if any of you were lucky enough to see him do this or hear him do this. He is really quite a genius So um, I went to a talk that he did once where he was talking about some work that he did with the children's home and uh, that he'd seen a young man and first of all he'd seen the young man's carers and they'd had a discussion about the issues they were facing. Then he saw the young man himself and they had a discussion and then he got out these pictures which he called primitive art pictures, which they were primitive art pictures and... He asked the young man to tell him a story using the pictures. Um, Then, in return, Tom chose pictures, different pictures, and told the young man a story which included all the information and useful bits of things that he'd picked up during the sessions and wove it into this sort of genius-level story that the young person could identify with and use to help them move on. I've never managed to do that, but blimey, it was amazing. So, you know, one of the things that um, he talked about when I went to one talk by him, he talked about psychology through half-closed eyes. And uh, I think that sometimes what he'd be trying to do was do exactly what we'd all be trying to do, find a way to help somebody, But he'd have some really clever ways to do it so that people almost didn't realise that was what was happening. And their construing of the story would be so close to their construing that they were very easily able to take it on board. Um, And I think it was a very interesting way to do things. Sometimes people use Dixit cards to do a similar kind of thing. I'll put a reference into that. Um, I've not used them myself, but I've used pictures. And Tom also had some pictures drawn for him 
um, which were of ambiguous situations um, in schools and places like that of young people doing things um, that he used in storytelling with young children and young people but also to help them explore construing of themselves I have definitely used photographs in that kind of role so I've got a set of photographs which are from um, children's philosophy pack uh, they're great but also you can get your own nowadays so if you look on unsplash um, which is on the internet there are thousands of photographs on there you can type in uh, a word that relates to an emotion and it will pull up all the pictures related by the people who put them on there. They're free. So you can print out your own set of photos and make a thing that you can then use for exploring, construing and maybe to uh, explain how you're construing things or an alternative. So what Tom was able to do was hear what was going on and then make a new story which included enough related to the old story that the young person would recognise themselves in it without having to be told they were in it, but it wouldn't say they were in it. Very clever indeed. So Tom's fourth approach to changing things would be to tell a story that would help people to make changes or see where they could move. Um, and he said that these were stories that he built were based on kinds of Buddhism and Far East or the Middle East stories, but use them to illuminate. So this chapter of a book, which is chapter eight, as it happens, is seven pages long. I mean, that's incredible. So in seven pages, he raises issues that are about the difficulty of being asked for advice or of offering advice. Uh, in a very clear kind of way. So, you know, thinking of his aphorisms, you might want to print them out and stick them on your wall and remind you. Um, I don't need reminding about the boomerang, but I'm never going to forget that. But I think that, you know, one of the things is to think of what we try to do as therapists or psychologists or specialist interveners of any kind is to hear what people are saying to us from a PCP point of view, and then to use that information to help them to move. And if it doesn't do that, then we haven't done a very good job. If it does do that, we're on the right track, and maybe we'll get better. And certainly, you know, I've worked with people where at first it takes a while before you see any movement start to happen. And quite often I would feel like I was banging my head against a brick wall, and then suddenly it begins. Uh, and I'm not sure, you know, I couldn't say for each person why, why there was the shift point on that day at that moment. But somehow in my floundering around and trying to find ways and trying to explore different angles on things, something worked. Um, it sounds a bit vague, but sometimes I don't know what it is. And sometimes you can tell what it is it was an exploration of a particular bit of something that really made the difference um, I worked with uh, a young person who was autistic who'd had loads of problems with eating and in theory the work was about eating and we had lots of difficulties um, I suppose in terms of him engaging in that piece of work he didn't want to do it 
He had no wish to eat at all. What he wanted to do, and, and the place we got the shift, was when we worked out that what he wanted to do was have somewhere that he could come and talk that was about much more than eating. It was about other things to do with his family life that were upsetting him and worrying him, but also about he, he had sort of lost his way because he was out of school and had been out of school for a long time and he didn't know who he wanted to be. Um, and that was what he really wanted to talk about. And we got the shift at the point that we realised that that was the piece of work. I wouldn't say it pleased his parents overly because what they wanted was uh, this young person to start eating. I mean, the outcome was that he went back to school. I thought it was a better outcome as a starting point um, because eating was very fragile and he would go through phases where he'd eat and then he wouldn't eat again and then he would start eating again and then he wouldn't eat again and mainly he ate well when he was being heard. So when he had enough professionals involved and they were all talking to him, he would start eating again. And when they tailed off and left uh, or, you know, phased out their work, he would stop eating again. Um, once we could get him to go to a school, a special school, that seemed to have made a huge difference, that he had sufficient adult time every day that maybe he didn't need to get it through not eating. And he did start to eat better. So, uh, you know, at the point that I'd seen him, he, we were trying to stop him having a tube um, for his feeds. Now he doesn't have a tube for his feeds and he goes to school. So, you know, sometimes things can work, but it goes a roundabout way. And what I do think is it's impossible to do any therapeutic work with somebody unless they have signed up well and truly. And children and young people, just like everybody else, they know what they think is relevant. And if we miss that, then they're likely to be very difficult to engage in any task or any exploration or any piece of work or any experiment with change if we can get it to the right point they might be willing to give something a go and to try a gentle experiment into an area that they would never have tolerated before interestingly with that lad um, when i uh, phased out it was during the summer holiday and he was due to be going to the special school in september uh, and I said to him before that, shall I make a meeting now to come into the school and talk to them about you? And he said, you don't need to do that. I've already done it. He's a year six boy. He said, I've already told them what I'm like and what I need and what arrangements I need for my lunch. Um, so you don't need to do that. Uh, and when he went, he sorted it out. And, you know, it was an interesting move because before that he had been pretty helpless at uh, being able to do anything. But he, he was sort of living outside a context. He was just at home. And I think one, he was probably rather bored. Uh, and the other was that he was very entrenched in ways that were really not helping him to experience life. So I hope you're encouraged to go and have a look at that paper. If you want to buy the book, it's £45 at the moment on Amazon, but if you hang on, you might be able to get it second-hand. The other thing to do, of course, is to go to your local library. Um, so if you've got a library at your work or your organisation, 
ask them if they can order it. Uh, if you've got your local library in your town, ask them if they can order it. £45 is quite a big investment um, for a book if you're not sure about it. I would say there's loads of good papers in there, but you've got to remember that I'm very biased. <laughs> OK, so that's all for January. I hope I'll see you again in February and you'll join me for whatever we do next. Um, if you'd like to make any comments or get in touch with me, you can email me at drawingtheidealself at icloud.com and I'd love to hear from you. If you find the podcast either useful or you've got ideas about how it could become useful um, by whatever is covered, can you let me know? That'd be really great. So it's a bit weird doing something like this because it feels like, well, at the moment, I feel like I'm talking to my garden in some ways because that's where I'm looking. So it's a bit strange. Um, however, I have had some feedback from people to say they do listen and they are finding it helpful. And really, that's very encouraging. So any feedback is fab, even if all you want to do is say, yeah, keep doing it. That's great. OK, so thanks very much indeed. And I'll see you in February. <laughs>